in case you were wondering, that is not me. He uh, actually, when they charted out the messages for Colossians 3, he saw the controversial nature of what we're talking about this morning. He said, I'm out of here. Let's get McDowell to do this one. (laughs) Actually, he did give me a message to give to you. He said, tell the congregation, don't worry. I'll be back next week. I'm only going to Vegas for the weekend. (laughs) So, uh, no, that's not true. Hey, as we start, I do have a question for you, though. I want to know, how would you define freedom? Now, I don't mean political freedom. Thank God the political season is over. I mean individual freedom. What does it mean to be an individual who truly lives and experiences freedom? Now, I teach at Biola full-time, but I'm still part-time at CBCS, Capistrano Valley Christian Schools, and I like to ask my students questions sometimes to see what they're thinking. And one question I'll ask them is I'll say, can you define freedom for me? And the typical answer is freedom is doing whatever I want to do as long as nobody's telling me how to live my life. To each his own, be true to thyself. That's the sense of the culture that we live in, isn't it? You're only free if no one's telling you how to live your life. You get to do whatever feels good to you. Friends, I think this is clearly a different view of freedom than what the Bible portrays. In fact, I actually think biblically freedom can only be found in proper relationship to other people. So think about a football team for a minute. If you have a football team and each person on the team decides, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, that's not freedom, that's chaos. You're only free to play the game the way it's been designed when each person adopts their role, understands the rules of the game, and follows the coach and the quarterback. That's what I think is a more biblical understanding of freedom. Now, we're going to look at a passage that probably when you hear this passage, the first word that comes to your mind is almost certainly not freedom. But I think when we properly understand it, this is one of the most commonly misunderstood and powerful passages about experiencing freedom as a body of Christ and as a church. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. If you can't find it, it's right after Colossians chapter 2. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Colossians. (laughs) Or you can just look up on the screen with the marvels of technology. Here's what it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. 3 verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Friends, Paul just laid out a counterintuitive, countercultural sense of what freedom means. You know what he's saying? He's saying freedom is when we embrace and live in relationship to other people according to how God has designed us to be. I think we see this in the freest person who's ever lived. And by the way, who's the freest person who's ever lived? Okay, if you don't know the answer to a question in church, 
just say Jesus. <laughs> You'll get it right at least half the time. My son is at JK at CVCS. He's four. And the first day of class, the teacher teaches the students to raise their hand and not blurt out answers. So she said, class, raise your hand. I'll call on you. I'll ask an easy one at first. What's gray, has a big bushy tail, and climbs the trees? And none of the four and five-year-olds raised your hand. She thought, this is crazy. Students, put your hand up. I'll call on you. What's gray, has a big bushy tail, and climbs in trees? Nothing. She said, class, put your hand up. I will call on you. Give the answer. What's gray, has a big bushy tail, and climbs in trees? Finally, my son Shane, one of his classmates, little Johnny, sheepishly raised his hand in the back. She says, yes, Johnny. He says, I'll say Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. Ironically, the freest person who has ever lived is Jesus. But you might think, wait a minute, he was thrown in jail and he was crucified. How can he be free? Well, when Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate basically says, I can condemn you if I want to. What, if I want to, what does Jesus say back? He says, you have no authority over me unless it has been given from above. Jesus realized that he was free when he embraced that God was his ultimate authority and he lived in submission according to God's design for his life. That's countercultural and counterintuitive, but that's real freedom. Now we're gonna see this as we look at this passage more closely, but first, two things that I think might be helpful as we consider this passage. Colossians 3.18 through 4.1 is something called a household ethic. In other words, it's a code for how the household was to interact. Husbands, wives, masters, servants, parents, and children. There were other codes like this in the ancient Near East and in the Greco-Roman culture. But the Christian code was different as far as I could tell in two ways. And the first way was this, is that these codes were given before the whole church. So normally in the Greco-Roman culture, the men would get together and they would decide the rules for the home, how they treat their wives, how they treat their kids, how they treat their servants, who were essentially property to them. They were not accountable to anybody else. But here in this passage, this is a part of the letter Paul and Timothy wrote to the church at Colossae to be read out loud to everybody. So while it's talking about parents loving and not exasperating their kids, parents and kids are present. When they're talking about husbands loving their wives, he's speaking to the husbands, wives are there. You see how different this was? Each person was being spoken to as if they're an equal member of the body of Christ. And this is powerful, because when I was working on this message, I'm thinking, all right, I get to talk to a congregation about loving your wife. And in the third service, my wife will be here. I get to talk about not exasperating your kids. And in the third service, my son will be here. It's almost as if Paul is working in a natural sense of accountability that we all know what's required of ourselves. Now, don't take it this way, though, because I know some of you are thinking, good, I saw we're dealing with this passage, nudging your spouse, thinking, my husband needs to hear this today. And some of you kids are like, good, my parents need a little shakeup. I'm glad they're going to hear this. That's not what this is about. If the moment you heard we're studying this passage, your thought was, good, somebody else needs to hear this. You're missing the point. When I read this, not that it came easy to me, my first thought was, okay, what is specifically being said to me? <laughs> and am I actually doing this? 
See, if we're pointing fingers, we're missing the point of this. This was read before the entire body of Christ saying we are all in this together. Second, these commandments were given before the Lord. They were given before the Lord. So how many of you drive a little differently when you know a cop is watching? <laughs> Even Pastor Ty's like, yeah, I drive a little differently when I know there's a cop. And I've seen him drive by. No, that's not true. He's a good driver. I don't go out of my way to break the law. I think I'm generally a pretty good teacher. Uh, well, I hope I'm a good teacher, but I'm also a pretty good driver. But when I know there's a cop, it's like I do a little extra double check and make sure, okay, I'm not speeding. It's not a red light. There's something about knowing a cop or the boss or authority is watching that just reminds us of what we're supposed to do. So if you read this, we just read this passage together. I don't know if you picked up on this. I didn't pick up on this the first time. But after almost every single commandment we're reminding, because this is before the Lord. We're reminded of that. So look again at 3.18. Let me just take 3.18 it says, after it says wives submit your husbands, it says as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, it says, after children obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. 22, fearing the Lord. 23, as for the Lord. 24, you are serving the Lord. And at the very end, 25, knowing you also have a master in heaven. So ultimately, these commandments are given before each other, but also before the Lord. And I think knowing that the Lord is watching can keep us from great evil and encourage us to do great good. That's how this ethic differed from some of the other household codes of the Greco-Roman culture. Now with that said, let's look specifically at some of the commandments and ask what do they actually mean? So turn back to Colossians 3.18. Let's break this down. Verse 3.18 says, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now let me stop right here. I'm guessing some of you are like, I am so pumped that we are studying this verse because this is my life's verse. <laughs> I bet some of the ladies in here have taken a three by five note card, written Colossians 3.18, stuck it on your mirror so when you're getting ready in the morning, it just brings the joy of submitting to your husband. In fact, I think some of you have probably started blogs, the joy of submitting to my husband. In fact, my wife got it tattooed. No, that is totally not true. <laughs> That is completely not true. She doesn't have any tattoo, let alone that one. We joke about this, but the reality is, when I first got this passage, one of my first thoughts was, you know what? There's a lot of people with a lot of hurt when we talk about the home and when we talk about marriage. My father in particular, he was sexually abused for seven years by someone who worked at their farm. My dad's father was a drunk his entire life growing up. So passages like this, when it talks about wives submitting to husbands and husbands' wives, can bring up some pain, and it can bring up some hurt. In fact, some of you, if you're not Christians, the moment you hear this, wives submit to husbands, that's enough for you to say, you know what? I don't want in on this Christian thing. I've seen husbands be abusive. Why would you say submit to them? This is chauvinistic, it's old-fashioned, I don't believe it. Those are natural instincts when we look at this. What I do want to say to you before we go any further, if that is your experience in particular at the hand of somebody who claims to be a Christian, I am sorry that you've been treated that way. That is not God's design, and that is not 
God's intent. This raises a ton of questions. What if this is a non-Christian family? What if my parents are abusive? I get those difficult questions. I'm not gonna pretend that they don't exist. There's no way that I can address all of those in a sermon like this. I just want you to know that those are real questions, and if you have real questions and hurts, go talk to somebody at the church. Go work some of these questions through, please. Now, with that said, when it says, wives, submit your husband, instantly some people think, here we go again. Wives are second class. The Bible's downplaying women. Can I tell you something? I teach apologetics at Biola. There is no movement, no book, that has been better for women than the Bible, period. Now, it has been abused. I recognize that. But if we're talking about freedom as living according to God's design, where do we find God's design? We go back to Genesis. You know what you find in Genesis? From the first chapter in the Bible, it holds women of the highest regard. Now, how can I say this? Well, first off, it says in Genesis chapter one, God created them, what? Male and female, both in the image of God. Part of what has separated Christianity from every other world religion, at least the Judeo-Christian tradition, is we believe everybody, regardless of race, age, socioeconomic status, gender, is made in the image of God and has infinite dignity, value, and worth. In fact, other ancient stories I've read don't even mention the creation of women. They weren't even worth mentioning in the eyes of many of these cultures. Yet the Bible mentions them and says they're made in the image of God. But it goes further than that. What are, what are women made from in the Genesis 2 story? The side of a man. What are men made from? Dirt. <laughs> you know, I didn't even give any commentary on that and you laughed. I, I think that might be saying something. And also, you look at Genesis, there's a progressive creation where each day becomes more and more significant. He makes man he's not done. It climaxes with a woman. It's as if God says, all right, I made man, I think I can do better. Makes woman, he's like, I can't do any better, I'm done. The Bible holds women up in the highest degree imaginable this passage is talking about again with the sports team analogy yes we all have equal value but God has given us different roles to function within the household so the command here is not one of servitude or domination that is not the point when it says wives submit that's not what it's about in fact Paul does not call husbands to force their wives to submit notice he doesn't say that it doesn't say, husbands, make sure your wives submit. It never says that. It also doesn't say men, uh, women submit to men. This isn't a general statement. In fact, I think Paul is speaking to wives within the church who are followers of Christ, calling them to willingly honor their husbands as a way of honoring the Lord, to submit to them. Just the way it says in Ephesians 5, that we in the body of Christ are submit to one another and as Christ submitted to God the Father. Now turn really quickly with me to Ephesians chapter five. There's another passage that helps explore this but in a little bit more depth. Ephesians five, then we'll come back to Colossians three. Ephesians five, verse 22. It's gonna sound very familiar. 
Starts off and again, it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. What's he quoting from? Genesis 2, back to the creation. He says, why should we operate this way in the family household? Because this is how God designed us to be. He's explained the, the freedom idea again. Verse 32, this mystery is profound. I'm saying it first to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. What is Paul saying here? Paul's essentially saying the relationship between the husband and wife mirrors the relationship between Christ and the church. The husband is the head of the wife just as the wife is the head of the church. And the husband is called to love his wife just as Christ loved the church. Now this raises a question. If husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, how did Christ love the church? And I think you know the answer to this. It was certainly not by having a certain feeling towards the church. We think love is a feeling today, don't we? That's not what Paul was saying. In fact, in John 15, 13, it says, greater love hath no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Jesus led by self-sacrifice. He did not lead by saying, I've got the authority, I'm in charge. No, he led, he said to his disciples. <laughs> he said, the first shall be last. He washed their feet. In fact, as I thought about this, you know in Ephesians 5, once it tells wives to submit, once it tells them to respect their husbands, three times it tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. I think husbands, we don't get offended by this because we don't really think through and grasp exactly the sacrifice of what that entails. The level of what we're being called to to love our wives with the same commitment and sacrifice for their own good in the way that Christ did for the church. In fact, I actually think if husbands, if we truly love our wives the way that Christ loved the church, not in all circumstances, but I think most wives would gladly follow and submit to a husband who leads like Christ. I really do. Call me old-fashioned, say I'm mistaken. Yes, there's exceptions. But I'll give you an example. I, a friend of mine, he graduated from CVCS probably eight or 10 years ago, a student of mine, went down and he started working in a business in San Diego. He volunteered at a singles group as a part of the larger The Rock Church. 
And he was there for, I don't know, two or three years just setting up chairs, serving, getting food, setting up the coffee cart, just serving this ministry for two or three years. Then the pastor of that singles group stepped down. He announced to all the leadership that he was stepping down and my friend was going to become the leader, the pastor of that church. You know, instantly when he said that, what somebody said, somebody said, great, I would gladly follow him. Why? Because he had been serving in the way that Christ calls us to serve. It wasn't about authority for him. It wasn't about power for him. It was about loving and serving and getting the best for the congregation. That's what Christ is calling husbands to do. And it's in that context that he says, wives, submit to your husbands. It's not a power play. It's simply a way of living out in the family the way that Christ loved the church. And it's powerful to think about. That means that people will look at your marriage relationship if you're married They'll look at my marriage relationship and it will mirror how they understand Christ's love for the church. That's powerful. That's powerful. Let's move on to the second part in Colossians 3. It says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, it's always been interesting to me. When I would study the Ten Commandments with my students, The first four are between us and God. The next six are between human beings. But commandment number five, honor your parents, is the first commandment given between human beings. So ironically, you probably say don't murder first, don't lie, don't steal. But we're first told to honor our parents. Why? Because it's in the institution of the family that people learn proper respect for authority. So somebody will end up committing the other sins listed if they first don't learn to submit and honor their parents. That's why the nuclear family is the basis of any healthy civilization. It starts there. But students always ask me, they go, McDowell, what if my parents are unreasonable? You clearly don't know my parents, they'll say. My answer is, of course, barring that their parents are asking them to do something illegal or immoral, that's a given. If you want to honor the Lord, obey your parents. What if my parents are strict? If you want to honor the Lord, obey your parents. But what if my parents are the most boring and unrealistic parents in the history of parenting in the history of the world? If you want to honor the Lord, Obey your parents. I had a student at CBCS a few years ago, and I'll never forget, he came up to me. His background, his family was not Christian. In fact, his family was Jewish. And he came to me, and he goes, he became a Christian. He goes, Mr. McDowell, I don't know what to do. My parents won't let me go to church, so I'm sneaking out at night to go to church. My first thought was, this is a great problem. Anytime a kid wants to sneak out to go to church, like, I can deal with this. It's usually sneak out for something else, but what do you do? What's the proper response here? And when I told him, I said, look, first off, have a long-term view. You won't be in this house the rest of your life. I said, but while you're under your parents' authority, obey your parents. Don't sneak behind your back. Don't deceive them. You have Bible class at CVCS. We can talk. Honor your parents. 
Now, I will say something. I see a few young people in here. Keep a few things in mind. First off, Pastor Ty shared with me that in a graduation speech, Bill Gates said, your parents weren't nearly as boring until you came along. <laughs> so maybe keep that one in mind a little bit. But second, as I worked on this, please realize something, children. And children doesn't mean just five and under. It means essentially that you are still under the authority in the home with your parents. Your parents are imperfect. Can I tell you, I am painfully aware of my failings as a dad. I'm well aware of it. Your parents aren't perfect. Extend them some grace. Second, if you learn to honor your parents when they're unreasonable, you are learning a valuable life lesson. I promise you, you'll have unreasonable neighbors, you have unreasonable bosses, and just possibly you'll have unreasonable elected officials. Just possibly. <laughs> You're learning a lesson for life. And last, children, even if your parents are unreasonable and you honor them, I'm not saying this is easy, you are honoring the Lord. God looks down and smiles if you honor your parents even when it's tough. But parents, it says, and when it says fathers, I think it's referring to all parents. Husbands and wives. Do not exasperate your kids. I asked my daughter who's nine, I said, do you know what exasperate or provoke means? Do we ever provoke and exasperate you as parents? I said, actually, don't speak. I said, just tell me. Do I provoke you? And she said, yes. I was like, oh, great. I'm speaking on this. And like my daughter says, I provoke her. I said, okay, maybe I need to learn. When do I provoke you? She says, well, when you make me eat my green beans, <laughs> when you make me brush my teeth and go to bed on time. And I'm inside, I'm like, okay, I can deal with that kind of provoking. But I think when Paul says, don't provoke your children, I think what he's saying is don't be overbearing on your kids. Don't make everything so spiritual where there's no relationship and there's no freedom to make mistakes that it makes them want to rebel. This past year, we took about 30 high school students at CBCS up to Berkeley. And there was a fellow there, he was 50 years old. We invited atheists, agnostics to, to come speak to our students and we trained him well enough to defend their faith. And we brought in a man who's 50s, grew up, his dad was and still is a pastor. He's an atheist and he's gay. And he was speaking to our church and he shared something that I'll never, ever forget. He said about 10 years ago in 2007, he said I was 40 and I made some investments on some homes. The economy tanked and I wasn't able to fully recover. So I went to my parents in my 40s and can you imagine how humbling that would be? He said I needed help, I went to my parents my dad's a pastor, I said, I made some mistakes, I need some help. He said, my dad looked at me and said, son, I can't help you because I think God is teaching you a lesson. As we heard this man speak, his parents gave him rules, his parents had high expectations, they never showed him love, they never showed him grace, and it made him want to rebel and reject their faith. I think that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, yes, love our kids. Yes, have guidelines, but don't exasperate them. Don't put them in a position where they feel the need to rebel. And last in Colossians 3.22 through 4.1, it's talking about servants and masters. 
bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye services, people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And then he walks through in the rest of the passage and he says, honor your servants because when you, your masters, when you serve your masters, you're actually serving the Lord and your master will be held to account. Now when you read this, you might be thinking, my goodness, is the Bible endorsing slavery? I had a debate a few years ago and the moment I was done, it was at this high school teacher at Capo Valley High School. This atheist came up to me and goes, how can you be a Christian? The Bible endorses slavery. And I said, okay, keep, keep a couple things in mind. First off, of all ancient books, it was actually the Bible that first began to say that slaves have value. They're not just property. This is a biblical idea that slaves are persons and we treat them with dignity. I said, second, the kind of slavery we've experienced in the West is very different than what the Bible's talking about. These are not the same things. I said, and last, really what Paul is doing is, you might be thinking, well, why didn't Jesus and Paul speak out about slavery? Well, it's not like modern day democracy. It's not like they could get 50 signatures and say, let's have Proposition 18 overturn slavery in Rome. It didn't work that way. So rather, they began to change hearts and minds knowing that in time, it would lead to overturning slavery. So God is taking a broken institution, beginning to change them from the inside out, but also saying, all right, in light of this broken world, how do we honor God when we live in a world that's fallen? That's the question that Paul is asking here. And although we don't have modern-day slavery, what's interesting is I was talking with Pastor Derek this week, and he said, you know what? If Paul saw each one of us in our mortgage statements and said, wait a minute, you make monthly payments to the bank? He'd say, you're a slave to the bank. (laughs) I hadn't quite thought about it that way. The question is, how do we honor people who are in authority over us? That's the question that he's ultimately dealing with here. And I think here's what Paul's essential message is. Obey and serve your masters genuinely because ultimately you're serving the Lord. That's powerful. I know all of you at some point have someone unreasonable who's over you, maybe a coach, maybe a teacher, maybe a boss, somebody who's unreasonable. What do we do when it's unreasonable? Well, remember a few things. Number one, Paul says, knowing from the Lord you will receive your inheritance. We will be rewarded in heaven if we lovingly, faithfully serve under people today. Second, when we serve people, even when they're unreasonable, we are ultimately serving the Lord through those people. First commandment is love God, second commandment is love other people, but we love God by how we love other people. Third, remember, God is just. Nobody gets away ultimately with anything. God is gonna bring, just like we sang in the song, he walks to me and talks to me. This idea, some of the songs we sing, ultimately God is going to bring justice. Friends, freedom is not found in doing whatever we wanna do. Freedom is not based upon being true to thyself. Rather, like a football team, we have the body of Christ. What does Paul say? You have an eye, you have a foot, you have a hand. We are each called husbands, wives, children, parents to a different role even though all of us have equal value within the body of Christ. We are only free when we willingly accept 
the role and responsibility God has given us, knowing that regardless of how people may treat us, we are honoring the Lord. That's freeing, that we are playing for an audience of one. So husbands, God is pleased when you love your wives, even if they don't reciprocate. Wives, God is pleased when you submit to your husbands, even if they're unreasonable. Children, God is pleased when you honor your parents, even when what they say seems ridiculous. Not in my household, but I know that's true for yours. <laughs> parents, God is pleased when you love your kids, raise them up in the way of the Lord but don't provoke them and don't exasperate them. You know what the bottom line of this passage is as I read it? Everybody is under authority. We all are. There's nobody who's not under authority. Jesus was under authority. And he willingly submitted himself to the point of being crucified because he knew that God had a greater call on his life. If Jesus can lead with that self-sacrifice and be truly free, then so can we. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that you do love us and you have called us into relationship with one another. Not a relationship of just domineering or control, but one of service and of love and care. God, I pray if there's some people here who this message has been difficult in some ways. God, bless them, guide them, just give them peace, the ability to forgive those who've maybe hurt them, and just the courage to live out really the role that you have for them in the body of Christ. God, we love you, and we give this day to you. In Jesus' name, amen.